You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. We're going to dive deep into NBA off-season recaps. We're going to do the first 10 teams in the alphabet today. That includes the Atlanta Hawks, the Boston Celtics, the Brooklyn Nets, the Charlotte Hornets, the Chicago Bulls, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Dallas Mavericks, the Denver Nuggets, the Detroit Pistons, and the Golden State Warriors. And I swear, I will not say Charlotte that weirdly again this episode. We're going to start a little bit with the FIBA World Cup because we got some weird results over the weekend. I have not yet watched the Canada-Spain game, so I don't want to dive too much into that. But I do want to talk about Team USA's loss to Lithuania last night and the general tenor of Australia being eliminated from this World Cup despite featuring something like 10 NBA players on this roster. Adam, you are over there in the DMV. What's going on, buddy? Hey, Sam. Uh, It's a great day. It's Labor Day weekend here. And while I'm still somewhat laboring because I'm just trying to get ready for the school year, like we got to see... My Lithuanian national team in action. I am a uh, have an honorary Lithuanian, so to speak. This jersey on the wall with my name on it behind me was a gift from a former player that the, that I coached who is Lithuanian and uh, bestowed that honor upon me. So there's a little bit of pride running right now, but uh, an interesting and a fun game I'm looking forward to talk about, as well as diving into some of the results of the summer here as we preview the next NBA season. I love it. I absolutely love it. Okay, let's start there. Team USA loses to Lithuania last night, 110 to 104. The fact that Lithuania scored 110 points in a 40-minute game, you can chalk some of that up to some late-game shenanigans by Team USA fouling late and trying to, you know, extend the game. Ton of possessions late in that game. Having said that, 110 feels right. Because the issue for Team USA right now is on the defensive end, I think. And let's start here. The the two main things that it felt like stood out to me in this game were, first, the pick-and-roll defense just did not have any real synergy for Team USA. It seemed like they didn't really have a plan. Uh, some of the defense and space by the bigs was a problem. Obviously, you know, 
Lithuania tried to get Austin Reeves switched onto bigs pretty regularly. That was a real problem. The, the second issue is the rebounding issue. And that's whereas I think they can kind of work on the defensive continuity a little bit. Like you can get more comfortable with one another. You can practice, you can try and develop like a little bit of a plan of attack over the course of the next couple of days. The rebounding issue is one that is concerning to me because Jerry Jackson just has never been a great rebounder for a big, obviously. And he is your anchor. He's your centerpiece, the guy you need out there. Brandon Ingram for as big and long as he is, not a great rebounder. Mikhail Bridges, not a great rebounder for his size. Uh, Anthony Edwards, I think, has done like a pretty okay job, like crashing in from the perimeter and grabbing rebounds. Tyrese Halliburton at times as well has done an okay job there. But the bigs particularly, it felt like to me, did not have a great plan of attack in terms of boxing out and rebounding against Lithuania. And that that feels like a real worry. They The Lithuanians had 18 offensive rebounds in this game. That's a lot. Like Tata Setakerskis and Jonas Valanciunas, like, by the way, Jonas, like, didn't even get any offensive rebounds in that game. But just his ability to carve out space and, like, carve out dudes around him and allow his men to crash in and grab the rebounds, I thought was really important. I thought that Lithuania had a great game plan to take advantage of Team USA. And... Uh, that feels concerning to me against some of these bigger teams or if they run into Lithuania again. Yeah. Big shout out to Lithuania first and foremost for the game plan, the execution. They were poised and primed to take advantage of every miscue that USA made and really surgically and tactically just were dialed in on what mismatches they needed to go at at certain periods of time. As soon as Austin Reeves gets subbed in, boom, try to post them up with their bigger wings and UCLA actions. As soon as you, you know, USA went a little bit smaller with Bancaro or, or, or even Portis at times kind of playing the five in some lineups, like switch, draw it out, throw the ball inside and force USA to collapse and help. They were great with their, their opportunistic ability on, on that end of the floor. And then they had the right game plan of clogging the lane against USA and trying to turn them into a little bit of a jump shooting team. The, the defense stuff for Team USA continues to be really frustrating because Jaron Jackson Jr., for as good of a defender as he is and ball screens and versatile in, in the ways that he can do different coverages – He's not rebounded well, and he has gotten himself into a lot of foul trouble in the minutes that he's played. And when you commit to playing him in maybe more of like a a drop coverage or trying to keep him closer to the basket, the idea here when you go against bigs like Jonas Valanciunas or in the Montenegro game against uh, Nikola Vucevic is to prevent USA's wings one through four from switching. When Steve yeah. Kerr made the decision to start Josh Hart kind of at the four, so to speak, USA is smaller on the wings at the three and the four spots. And as a result of that, a lot of these international teams who either play two bigs or have a four man who can take advantage of you inside and out will find ways to post you up. So the idea here was to mitigate those advantages by not switching with Jaron Jackson Jr., but as yeah. we have seen throughout this tournament, when he's not on the floor, what is USA's answer at the five? They don't really have a guy that can play against the five without being in switching coverage. 
That's where we've seen Paolo Bancaro get the most of, of his opportunity in minutes. And I think each of the last two games have highlighted some of the challenges he has if he's not playing in a switch everything type of scheme. Walker Kessler's minutes weren't great today. He got in foul trouble a little bit early and, you know, Valanciunas was able to punk him a little bit with some pump fakes to and ones and, and just really won the positional battle between those two inside. But everything to me stems from USA searching for an answer, not just with coverages, but personnel and kind of lineups in that regard. And when you have, 12 NBA players and really, really talented guys who you're trying to juggle everything with and make sure they all get some minutes, it can be very easy to find yourself with a mismatched lineup that doesn't make a ton of sense on the floor at one time. And Lithuania just punished the USA every single time. One of those five-man combinations didn't make perfect sense. Yeah, I think that what you're saying there is right. And I my, my issue is just how do you fix it at the end of the day, right? Like that's that's what I'm trying to figure out is just like how Team USA kind of goes about adjusting for the next game. And I, I'm honestly not sure I have the answer to that right now. They play Italy. Italy is a worse team. That'll be a good adjustment. Uh, but yeah, like they, they need to find some answers. Honestly, losing this game, probably a blessing in disguise on some level. They would have played Serbia in the quarterfinals had they won this game. They now play Italy uh, in the quarterfinals, which is a real win for them. I I don't know. Like You can look at it uh, positively in that regard, but this is a team that has had some structural flaws. We saw it in the opening games against Germany, for instance, where Germany and Dennis Schroeder really hammered them in ball screens, as you and I talked about. And we saw it against Lithuania. That They're teams that can really run high-level ball screen action can cause this USA team problems. And we will see how it goes. I will say, Dirty Dancer in the YouTube comments, by the way, if you're watching, Go watch on YouTube. Yep. Hit that subscribe button, please. Uh, we're going to have some interactive elements for the off-season recaps. It's going to be fun. Rokas Yakubaitis looks like a real NBA player. Yes. Yep. Rokas looked great, I thought. He had six assists in that game. I thought he was consistently awesome getting with the Lithuanians in and out of their actions. Rokas looked great. They, they just looked like a well-oiled machine top to bottom. Uh, really fun game and performance from them. They run good stuff. They don't take a ton of bad shots. They kind of made the little plays that fall into their lap at times when you need. Like I think it was what Mindagos Kuzminskis who just hit that end of shot clock yep. at like fumbling out Another of Another Knicks legend. Another Knicks legend right there. Mindy uh, Kuz. Yeah, that was that was one of those like Jordan shrug shots. Like, well, I don't know. It just kind of <laughs> happened to go in. And like yeah. it, when – when you make as many threes as they did in the first half and get out to that. Yeah. Basketball breaks that way sometimes. And USA, like give them credit for the way that they clawed back in, in the second half. And Anthony Edwards was somewhat heroic with his offensive performance and trying to carry things for them. But like he was issue- back in the Lahaina civic center against <laughs> yeah. Michigan state. Yep. The, the ultimate trying game. to carry them back. It was great. That was the best game. Know, best yeah, game. It, Anthony Edwards, uh, in I think it was like his fifth game at Georgia, uh, Michigan State got up like 30 in the first half against Georgia, and Ant just caught fire and dropped like 35 in the second half against Michigan State. It was amazing. Uh, shout out the Lahaina Civic Center, by the way. People in 
obviously Maui are going through a tough time right now. So shout out to them. But let's let's maybe move on from sure. the USA and talk about Australia for five minutes real quick because I, I need to talk about that uh, for my people here. Uh, here's the deal. So I went on Chris Anstey and Mark Worthington's Has Been Hoops podcast. Go listen to that. It was a really fun episode. They're the best. I love them. They'll be on the show at some point. Um, this one, that is. And what Chris brought up was this idea that Australia can medal in any tournament and they can finish somewhere between eighth and 10th in every tournament, basically, depending on the day and depending on just the performances they get from their players. Right. And to me, that felt right at the time. I told Chris at the time that felt right. And I think that that really bore itself out. They got an horrible draw first and foremost. Like you end up in a first group with Germany, Finland, and Japan. And then in your second group, you end up opposite Slovenia, who you just played in the bronze medal match of the world uh, of the Olympics. Like, one of Germany, Australia, and Slovenia was always going to go home. And that made it difficult, I think, for anyone uh, in that circumstance, because those are three of the best eight teams in the world. Having said that, this Australian team was kind of a mess. I'll do respect to them. I thought that they never had a real level of cohesion on offense in large part because they never found the lineup structures that really worked. And to me, I think Brian Gorgian is a great basketball coach. And I think that, you know, obviously he was instrumental in leading Australia uh, over the course of the last, you know, years here. I I did not think he coached his best tournament here is what I would say. Uh, I don't think that the selection of players was phenomenal. I think that he took a roster that had no shooting. It had very little creation outside of Josh Giddy and Patty Mills. And when they really needed that secondary creation, they got some of it from Dante Exum, but there was no shooting and no floor spacing for those guys to attack. Josh Giddy shot like 70% from two point range in this tournament, despite the fact that this team really only had Patty Mills as like a plus shooter. Like Joe Ingles did not play wildly well. Let's, let's just leave it at that. Uh, I thought Nick Kay really struggled. I think they were hoping that Nick Kay was going to be able to play high level minutes at the four and they'd be able to play two bigs with Kay and Dwap wreath and that both of those guys can kind of shoot teams don't really give a shit if they shoot like they want that's that is part of their defensive scheme they want Dwap wreath and Nick Kay shooting and neither of those guys really were able to take advantage of that fact so for this next tournament which is the Olympics in 2024 in Paris like Australia needs to kind of go back to the drawing board a little bit and find some shooting and be willing to play at shooting. Like they had Chris Golding on this roster. Chris Golding has been the best shooter in the NBL for years upon years. Now it was weird to me that 
Gorgon did not play Chris Golding all that much. I get that you make some real defensive trade-offs with Golding, but that's the advantage of having Josh Green and Xavier Cooks and Dante Exum and Matisse Thibel on this roster is you're able to pair Chris Golding with guys that can really defend. So, yeah, I, to me, this was obviously a very disappointing result for the Australians. And I thought that the coaching could have been better. And I do just want to note, like they got hammered with Jock Londale going out, you know, the game before the world cup, right? Jock Londale doesn't go out. This is probably a different world cup for them. They probably beat Germany because what really happened in that Germany game was, you know, Daniel Tice and guys like that were able to like hammer them in a real way. The bigs really struggled in that game for Germany or for Australia against Germany. I'm sorry. If Jock Londale's on this team, I think that they get through to the quarterfinals and all bets are off. It's just, they need to find one more big. Maybe it's Ben Simmons. Maybe he's able to come in and play that role and they need to find more shooting and floor spacing. Like you have to do it. And the, the popular name out there is like naturalizing Bryce Cotton and using him instead of Matisse Thibel. I saw Trevor Gleason said that. I actually would probably do that. Just the only reason, and look, I don't know if Bryce Cotton's going to be able to get naturalized. That has been a fraught process seemingly over here. Uh, the, the reason I would do that is because you have all of this overlap with Bible. You have Cooks, you have uh, Josh Green, you have Dante Exum, you have all of these athletic, defensive-minded players that you can make it work with. You don't really have anyone other than Patty Mills that can be like a dynamic scorer uh, outside of Josh Giddy, who's like a driving and attacking and transition threat. So... Yeah, I, uh, I am. It was a, it was a weird, weird tournament for Australia. I would say a weird tournament. Yeah, shooting matters a lot in modern basketball, uh, and they were about two to three shooters short on the court at a time. So that uh, catches up with you. Yeah, I think that's right. That's my five minute rant on Australia. And look, like I think the Australian public does need to come to terms with the fact that. The Australian national team is a genuinely great team worldwide now. That does not mean that they are going to medal or finish in the top five of every tournament at this point. It's just kind of not the reality of where they sit. You know, teams like Germany, Spain, Slovenia, uh, you know, Lithuania, the United States, they're all Canada, certainly, after the way that they just beat Spain. They're all certainly on this level. And there are others that are certainly on this level too. Serbia is another one, right? Like Australia is not just going to waltz into every tournament now and like make the quarterfinals. Like you, you get caught with a bad draw. Like they did. It's going to be a problem. Like they can, they can lose. Josh Giddy is great. Patty Mills is still Patty Mills when he puts on an Australian Jersey. It's just, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not automatic is my point here. Yeah. But man, isn't the game of basketball worldwide in such a great place right now? How many teams are able to field competitive, deep groups that can play cohesive basketball and push the top talents in the world. Like having nine to 10 NBA players on a roster 
doesn't mean a whole lot if the fit and the cohesion doesn't necessarily work. You can't just out-talent people anymore. And to me, that is such a good thing for where the game of basketball is right now and where it continues to be headed. Yeah, that is right. Okay. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Then we're going to get going to get into off-season previews. We're going to start with the Hawks. All right, Adam. We are going to start off-season previews or recaps. I keep saying previews. My God. We're doing <laughs> off-season recaps. The 2023 yeah. off-season has basically come to an end, I guess. There are still moves out there. Joel Embiid could get moved at any time. Uh, or not Joel Embiid, I'm sorry. Damian Lillard could get moved at any time. James Harden could get moved at any time. Certainly not Joel Embiid. He ain't going anywhere this he year. He scared the shit out of me, Sam. Joel isn't going anywhere. My brain broke for a second. Yeah. I confused James Harden with Joel Embiid in my brain. It's early over here, Adam. Come on. It's four. It's what is it? It's 930 a.m. We're we're tired. Okay. So the offseason isn't like a done deal. On top of that, there are players that are extension eligible. Everybody in the 2020 draft that has not yet signed an extension and was a first round pick. Still extension eligible. Plenty of veterans around the league are extension eligible. So there are quite a few players here that are in limbo in some way, could get a different contract than what currently exists. We've broken all that out with these little handy graphics. Everything you need to know about a team's offseason. So we're going to start with the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks signed DeJounte Murray to a four-year, $114 million contract extension. They signed Wes Matthews to a one-year, $3.2 million contract. They waived Tyrese Martin, Vic Krejci. They signed Miles Norris and Seth Lundy to two ways. In the draft, they took Kobe Bufkin at number 15. He's a 6'4 combo guard from Michigan. They acquired the number 39 overall pick in order to take Mo Gay, a 6'11 center from Washington State. They think he's a forward. I disagree. They used the number 46 pick on Seth Lundy, that 6'5 wing. And then trades, they traded John Collins to Utah for Rudy Gay and a 2026 second round pick. That created a $25 million trade exception that they then used to acquire Ty Ty in the second deal that I will allude to momentarily. They still have 23 million of this trade exception for John Collins available to them. The Hawks also participated in this weird multi-team deal where they moved Alpha Kaba for Ty Ty Washington, Usman Garuba and a 2028 second. They then traded Rudy Gay, Usman Garuba and Ty Ty for Patty Mills and a future second all told they basically picked up two seconds in Patty Mills for Alpha Kaba, which is good work. The big thing for Atlanta here, in my opinion, though, that we have to talk about is their biggest addition is not going to come from anybody they acquired. It's going to come in the form of Quinn Snyder, yes. who is their coach. Yep. And 
will hopefully be bringing a bit more of a modern offensive style than what Nate McMillan was able to over the years. Yeah, that was a team that was, I believe, dead last during the regular season in three-point attempts per game or percentage of shots that came from three. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, either Sam or somebody in the, the comments section, but when you have Trey Young and a couple other pretty good floor spacers on this roster, that seems not ideal. So Quinn Snyder being inserted as the head coach here is going to allow this offense, because we know he's very three-point friendly, loves to have ball movement-centric offenses, and once they create dribble penetration, that thing just flies around extra pass, extra pass, extra pass, and finds the right guy. This is a team who should expect a reasonable bump in their offensive production just by taking different shots with similar personnel. And, yeah. you know, you sprinkle into that, like the John Collins trade in deal was not a great one for them from a return standpoint, right? They shed yep. some assets and yes, they have this trade exception they can use, but by and large, this is a team that I think wants to avoid the tax. So you lose a guy like John Collins. I don't want to call this addition by subtraction. But I think far too many times during the offseason, we look at all of these moves individually and grade them out and then trying to average all of those grades together to just lump it onto what the Hawks or or whatever team we're talking about, what their offseason looks like. To me, I try to, to think of it a little bit more of, are you better now than you were in April, May, June? Did you improve as a team? Is there something that gives me more hope that this season will be better? I could care a little bit less about the weeds and the return on each deal if I feel like the group fits more cohesively right now. And it's not just having Quinn Snyder who's going to modernize their offensive approach. Instead, I really like the depth of wings they have who can play both the three and the four, which is a style that Quinn Snyder has proven he can have success with on both ends of the floor. To me, that's where my excitement comes for Atlanta, is knowing that guys like Sadiq Bey and A.J. Griffin and DeAndre Hunter are going to be able to explode a little bit more because John Collins isn't around and because they're playing for a coach who's going to know how to utilize them best on the offensive end. So just a few things that stand out to me in terms of the roster here, right? First and foremost, they did the most important thing that they can do, which is re-signed DeJounte Murray to a contract extension that I think is going to look phenomenal as he continues to age. I I think that number to get him at like 28 million a year, that's just an unbelievable contract as long as he stays healthy. Uh, That is by far the, the most important thing. And on some level, that alone makes this offseason kind of a win for them. It's not like an enormous win. I don't think they took like a huge leap or anything. But getting DeJounte locked down for four more years is a big number. Now, what immediately stands out to me about moving John Collins is, A, it does make the pieces potentially make a little bit more sense in Atlanta. B, it is a real bet on the young players that Travis Schlenk, when he was running the Atlanta Hawks front office, accumulated over the course of his time. Think about guys like Jalen Johnson, like DeAndre Hunter, 
certainly Bogdan Bogdanovich. Then after he left, Sadiq Bey, AJ Griffin. These guys, Schlenk might have been there when AJ was taken, but that seems like it wasn't necessarily Schlenk's call at that point. All of those guys are now going to be lifted into roles that are really important for the Hawks this year. The Hawks need A.J. Griffin to be able to knock down shots. They need Jalen Johnson to be able to provide athletic, versatile defense. They need Sadiq Bey to knock down shots and provide like a bigger framed guy at the three and the four. It's an interesting bet to make. I, I do like it, I think. The other piece of this that is still up in the air is the center position. They can get 48 great minutes defensively from Clint Capella and Onyeka Kongwu. But as I write here, the next pieces are that Sadiq Bey, Onyeka Kongwu, and Clint Capella are all still extension eligible at this point. They're the three guys that the Hawks have to make decisions on. And I, if I'm the Hawks, I don't know if I make decisions on any of these guys yeah. right now. I, I might like if I could get on Yeka at a great deal, like if I could get him at like 460 or something like that, like if I get 458 or whatever the Robert Williams deal is, I would probably try and do that because I think Onyeka Kongwu is an awesome player and I think he is someone worth continuing to invest resources in. But if I'm on Yeka Kongwu, I don't know if I want to sign a deal until I know what is going on with Clint Capella. Because if you're on Yekka's camp, right, like San Antonio potentially has an awesome center position available next to Victor Wembenyama uh, in the offseason. They're going to have all the cap space in the world. And that's an interesting player to put next to Vic, right? Like th- there are going to be a number of places where on will be really valued. And it feels like to me, the Hawks have never quite allowed him to not just thrive, but to like flourish and round out his game in a way that I would be really interested in. So the Hawks off season to me, the story of it is a getting DeJounte Murray under contract for the next five years. That's the most important thing they could have done. The off season's a win because of that. But B it's a huge bet on these young wings and these young guys coming through the system and being able to make a real tangible impact, not just in two years, but kind of this season. Like they actually need them right now. Yeah. And and look, I like a lot of these guys individually. So I'm going to be higher on the Atlanta Hawks and really give them the benefit of the doubt that like this was a positive move. I, I genuinely like all four or five of those kind of younger wings who have been in the rotation. Consistency is going to be key. And I think that's probably what keeps this team from being like maybe the difference between 38 and 45 wins for them is going to be how consistent that rotation and core really is and and tends to be. But, you know, we don't talk enough about the stars of the team here. Like this is Trey Young and DeJounte Murray having another year to continue to gel and learn how to play with each other. Again, they're doing so for a coach in Quinn Snyder who has made these two guard things work before he did so with Mitchell and Conley and and different guys in Utah he's going to be able to do that here in Atlanta I still think I say I feel like I say this every offseason and like it never comes to fruition like 
we need more Trey Young off ball. We need more of him coming off of screens, of him being willing to not just run the pick and roll time and time again because he is a legitimate gravity-seeking threat when he is standing on the perimeter. He has seemed a little reluctant. I'm not pinning this on him necessarily, but there seems to be some reluctance in not letting Trey Young just high pick and roll, high pick and roll every single time. I'd like to see that change a little bit this year. Well, the the other big piece of this too is that Quinn Snyder has coached essentially two lead-ish guards in Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell. One of them focused a little bit more scoring. One of them focused a little bit more on playmaking. Whereas I think that DeJounte and Trey have like a bit more of a mix than both of those guys Mm -hmm. had in Utah. I'm really interested to see how Quinn Snyder can get the most out of that duo moving forward. Uh, The last quick thing, let's just talk about the draft very briefly. Uh, Kobe Bufkin, Mo Gay, Seth Lundy. Uh, I loved the Kobe Bufkin pick. You and I both are enormous Kobe Bufkin fans. I would not expect much of him this season necessarily, but I love him as a third guard within that triumvirate of Trey Young and DeJounte Murray long-term more than anything. Like I, I think that having Kobe as like your secondary playmaker with either of those guys out there is going to be really, really effective. I did not love, I, I was not a big Mo Gay believer. Uh, he has an incredible amount of athletic tools, but I, I worry that he's not really a center defensively, despite the fact that I think he kind of needs to be a center uh, just in terms of what the role is going to be for him, he's really going to have to shoot it. Like really, really, really going to have to shoot it, I think. And then finally, Seth Lundy is just like a solid, you know, 46th overall, 23-year-old, 24-year-old, 3 and D wing. Uh, do, you, do you have any strong thoughts before we move on from Atlanta? Uh, you know, I don't know if I have any strong thoughts, like echo what you're saying there about Kobe Bufkin in that regard. You know, this is a group that had Ty Ty Washington and Usman Garuba and made different moves to try to navigate things around for Patty Mills and some future draft picks and things like that. I thought Usman Garuba would have been a really good fit next to Trey Young in some regard as like your third break class in case of emergency big. We've seen in the past playing overseas, he was a pretty proficient short role playmaker when he's paired with a guy that, that commands traps. Like I thought that would have been a good spot for him. Maybe developmental minutes in the backcourt for Ty Ty. I, I think Patty helps more this year, no doubt, but uh, you know, there was an opportunity to add a little bit more young depth to the roster. I found it interesting that they're going in the directions of both getting underneath the tax and making a more like veteran type of move to get a guy like Patty Mills, as opposed to those two that, that sat interestingly with me. Yeah, I don't disagree. Okay. Let's move to team two, the Boston Celtics. The Boston Celtics had one of the more active off seasons that you will see. I didn't think I recognized that at the time, but their offseason was actually quite important. Let's start with the trades because I, I think that the trade section is actually the one that saw the most roster movement, at least. They moved Marcus Smart, Danilo Gallinari, Mike Muscala, and the 35th overall pick in 2023 for Kristaps Porzingis, the number 25 pick, and the Warriors' 2024 first-round pick and a three-team deal with Washington and Memphis. They get essentially two first-round picks, and Chris stops for Marcus Smart, which is really good asset management, in my opinion, by Boston. They also traded Grant Williams, who was a restricted free agent, to the Dallas Mavericks for 
essentially three second round picks that created a $6.2 million trade exception. And then the most important part of their off season was actually the contracts they handed out. They signed Jalen Brown to this enormous five-year, $288 million max extension. Then they extended Christoph Porzingis to a two-year, $60 million extension after acquiring him in that deal. They signed O'Shea Brissett and Delano Banton. They still have Jason Tatum, who I don't think can actually sign an extension because his max number is set to just continue to rise, rise, rise. Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, and Peyton Pritchard as potential extension candidates. If I was them, I would be trying to sign Derek White to an extension. I think that just makes a lot of sense for them. Also on draft night, they were the most active team in terms of trades. Deep breath. They traded the number 25 overall pick for number 31 and two future seconds. They traded number 31 for number 34 and 39. They traded number 34 for number 38 and a future second. They then traded number 39 for a future second. All told, they traded number 25 and acquired five second round picks, four of those in future drafts. And they used one of those picks, the one at number 38 overall to take Jordan Walsh the six foot seven wing with an enormous wingspan and who performed quite well at summer league from Arkansas. Okay. That's a lot. Ooh. Do you think that this off season will be remembered as the one that they locked into Jalen Brown's max extension or the one where they moved Marcus smart? Because both of those are seismic moves in different ways. I will remember it as the one where they dealt Marcus Smart, more so because I kind of expected the Jalen Brown extension. Uh, Marcus Smart has become kind of the cultural leader in Boston in so many different ways over the last decade that that trade kind of came out of nowhere for me. When you look at what they got for making that deal, I think you do it 10 times out of 10. But um, that one did catch me by surprise a little bit, and I think that it's a very – different type of move by Brad Stevens in the Celtics front office to go in on being a little bit bigger that the Porzingis, Rob Williams, Horford triad at the four and the five really locks them into not just having great depth in the front court by playing those three in versatile kind of lineups together, but playing Tatum at the three and Brown at the two, which makes the Celtics freaking massive. And that's, they're going to be a tough team to match up with. They're really big. They are the thing that I felt like they have. I don't want to say they lacked, but I felt like they needed another option as a rim protection uh, candidate next to Rob Williams. When Rob is out there, Rob is obviously an enormous rim protector. I feel like that is kind of the piece of Al Horford's game that has been just a little bit less active uh, over the course of the last year. And, Getting Kristaps, I think it went way under the radar how good Kristaps was yes. last season. This was the best season of his career. Kristaps yeah. uh, Porzingis was everything that people like kind of envisioned him being when he came out of like Spain and you know ultimately Latvia, uh, which is where he's originally from. But he played in Sevilla for Spain when he was pre-draft. Like average twenty-three points, eight point four rebounds. He shot 39% on five and a half three-point attempts per game. I would bet for Boston, that oh, number's yeah. going up near seven or eight this year. 
he is going to be a pick and pop dude this year. Uh, shot 49% from the field, almost 50% from the field, 85% from the line. Uh, finally has like improved a little bit as like a passer and decision maker feels like to me. He's not like a total sieve there used to be that you could like really pressure him. It felt like to cause issues. The the other piece of this is, and I don't want to like overemphasize this maybe a little bit, but at the end of games, when you watch Boston, the, the Celtics biggest issue last year was end of game execution. Oh yeah. <laughs> It felt like they didn't have a hierarchy in terms of like who was going to be the guy. And often it resulted in Marcus deciding to take over and kind of be the guy, right? We we can be honest about that. And that's not what you want when you have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown on this roster. I do wonder if on some level, A, it's a great deal because you got – Christoph Porzingis, who's a great fit for the Celtics, who is a great fit for this offense because they love spacing from the five, all of that. And then you get the two first round picks as well, what they've turned into one first round pick and like five second round picks. I do wonder if part of this deal for Boston on some level was getting Marcus Smart out of there offensively and out of the engine room, despite the fact that he is such a leader because he's such a leader. He felt like he needed to take over in those moments a little bit. I wonder if part of this is just handing over the team to Jalen and Jason a little bit more saying that this is your team. Now we are going to go as far as your leadership takes us in addition to your skills. Well, it, it's funny. I was having a conversation with uh, a couple of buddies of mine who, who follow the Celtics pretty closely and are, you know, shrewd basketball minds. And the question they asked me was, what does Marcus Smart do that Derek White doesn't other than take a couple bad shots a game? And it, well, I, yeah, I, I think Derek is better than Marcus at this point, but I, I know that that's an unpopular opinion. Sure. And, and, and I think it's, I think that's the point that they're trying to make, right? Like it's, it's so close and it's close enough and the roles that they fill for the Celtics team are going to be similar that if you can turn smart, who might even be a little bit redundant when you have both him and white into front court floor spacing and all-star level production from Porzingis and all of these future assets that Brad Stevens is someday going to trade away because he doesn't want to make a first round pick ever. It seems like, it's a good deal for the Celtics. Um, it, it, it really, really is. And yeah. look, that, that 2024 first from Golden State, I think is going to probably be a valuable trade chip for them around the deadline this year and, and allow them to figure out what their depth issues might be and find a way to include that to address them. Yeah, and look, the Celtics do have their own first-round pick as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... You know, they have two picks that basically you would anticipate being in the 18 to 30 range, let's call it. I think there probably would be value in them, especially with Jalen and Jason using both of those picks, frankly, given how expensive Jalen and Jason are about to get together. If you have any chance of retaining both of them long term, you probably do need to get some really high level, you know, rookie scale talent in the door. I also think they probably will look at potential trade chips uh, with each of those picks if both come to fruition. Let's talk very briefly about Jalen Brown, though. 
this isn't the way this has been like framed by some people is very strange to me. This is a deal Boston like unequivocally had to do. Had to. Look, you can be worried about Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum making 70% of your cap long-term together if you really want to be, I guess. But what this does is it gives you a two-year window before Jason Tatum's next contract kicks in to where they can actually try and like really go at this. And in the NBA, a two-year window is all you can really ask for at this point. With the way the player movement is now, with the way that you know, guys will ask out with the way that the league continues to shift and fundamentally alter every year as new talent enters and talent exits and everything. A two-year window where you have all your guys locked in, basically, and you have a chance to win a title with your core, that's the best you can do. And the Celtics have set themselves up through this Jalen Brown contract where he is now going to make more money guaranteed than any player in NBA history, at least for now until, you know, next off season, they have set themselves up with that two year window. And that's what they had to do. They, they have opened up the window as wide as humanly possible. Maybe they win one, maybe they don't, but as a front office, that's the only thing you can do is set yourself up with the widest best possible window you can to win an NBA title. Totally agree. And I know that there's frustration about certain areas of Jalen's game that haven't necessarily improved, mainly kind of his, his handle and and the tightness and crispness of that. Look, this is a dude who just continues to get better at something year after year. And is an incredibly valuable two way player a guy who off court is as impeccable of an NBA player as you can find in terms of not worrying about him in the locker room and making sure that he's going to have great contributions to the community. It's a home run to retain Jalen Brown, keep Jason Tatum happy, keep this window open. The number is going to be the number. It's what the going rate is for these guys based on where the cap is headed and how things have just unfolded with the league making such a boom over the last decade. It's a jarring number to see. He's worth every penny. Yeah. Uh, Look, they take up about 50% of the cap next season. They take up about 60% of the cap in 2024-25. It's about right for your two best players. The next offseason is the one where it gets really crazy for them. You just kind of got to roll with it and you got to rock with it and see what happens. Uh, hopefully Boston is able to win a title for their sake. If not, we'll see. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I thought their draft uh, moves were intriguing. They added something like eight second round picks and a first this offseason. Again, a team that is going to need cheap players uh, around Jalen and Jason if they want to keep this core together long term. I understand why they went about it this way. Losing Grant Williams probably does not help, but he probably was also a bit superfluous on this roster at this point. You could use him situationally, but for the price tag of, you know, 13 to $14 million. Yeah. I, uh, I think all of this lines up and I think that this was a good off season for Boston uh, at the end of the day, they, they did all of the moves that, 
it wasn't the moves they had to make, but I, I like all of the moves they did make. Yeah, and year after year, I find myself saying pretty much that exact same thing. Like Brad Stevens has proven to be very shrewd in how he manages making this roster better from June to September. Yep. Okay, next up. The Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets did not have a wildly busy offseason. It was done pretty early, I guess I would say. It was basically done by July 1st. They signed Cam Johnson to his four-year $94.5 million contract. That deal contains 18 million incentives per sport track. Uh they signed Dennis Smith Jr., one of my favorite, like, under-the-radar signings of this entire offseason. Yeah. I love that they got Dennis. They signed Lonnie Walker to a minimum deal. They signed Darius Baisley, Trendon Watford, Narmani Brooks. Uh, they lose guys like Yuta Watanabe, Edmund Sumner, Seth Curry, a couple others. And then at draft night, everyone talked about them potentially moving up, potentially moving down. They just stayed steady. They took Noah Clowney, Dariq Whitehead, and Jalen Wilson. And then in trades, they moved Joe Harris in two seconds to Detroit to dump his cap space, basically in order to pay Cam Johnson so they didn't have a crazy tax bill. And then they traded Patty Mills in two seconds to Houston in a cap dump trade that created a $19.9 million trade exception in the Joe Harris example, and then also created a $6.8 million trade exception in the Patty Mills example. Kind of a quiet offseason. I don't know that we need to like belabor this. Uh, l- let's just go with this. What did you think of the Cam Johnson number? You know, it it seems all right to me. Um, a little higher. Like, I'm not the biggest Cam Johnson guy in the world. So it was a little higher than maybe I would have gone for him. But I think it's understandable. What do you think of it? Yeah, so he's going to be making somewhere between, you know, 25 and 22 million dollars basically over the course of the next four years and i think that he probably needs to show just a little bit more off the bounce a little bit more creativity to be worth that number but I think there is a chance that he's an asset on that deal as the cap rises they also did a bit of a funky structure i think they did like a the first year is the most expensive year for Cam Johnson. And they kind of descended it, which is good. Like that will, by the time, you know, 2027 rolls around and he's making, you know, $21 million or whatever per year, that deal probably will look pretty good as the cap rises. So I think it's a fine number. I didn't like it when it was announced at like 114 or whatever it was announced, but I think that, it being more in the vein of like 94 and a half. It, it makes a little bit more sense to me. The the ultimate question I have here with Brooklyn is just where are they headed? This was yeah. not a good team after they moved Kyrie and Kevin Durant at the deadline. They kind of backed their way into the playoffs. They did not win a game in the playoffs. If I remember correctly, might've stole one, but I thought they got swept. It just feels like they're gearing up to try and get a star at this point. And until they're able to find that star, this is just going to be kind of a spinning in circles situation to me. Yeah, I uh, I agree with that. And 
look, I like many of the individual players that they have on this roster and think that there's a lot of hope and potential for them to contribute to the Nets making a, a push in a couple of years. But uh, I think Mikhail Bridges is going to be a little over leveraged in kind of a leading role this year. And uh, we saw a lot of positive progression from him, but I don't think that's necessarily his forte. Like they, they need a number one option and you know, your guess is as good as mine as to how or when they, they go about getting that guy. See, and this is where I'm worried because Mikael Bridges has, you know, three years left on his deal. So you have, before you have to start like really considering moving him for assets, because he is one of the most valuable assets, I think on the market for a contending team because of his ability to slide into a role be an elite level three-point shooter who can do some things with the ball and be one of the five best perimeter defenders in basketball. You really have a two-year window now to get a star, right? And if you're not able to get that star and then you have to move Mikhail Bridges, you know, when he has one year left on his deal, you've kind of just spun your wheels a little bit for two years here. And I don't think this is a playoff team right now, frankly. Uh, I'll do respect to like Spencer Dinwiddie and Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges. Like we, we just didn't see anything last year that makes me think that this is a playoff team at the end of the day after they moved Kyrie and KD. The other piece of it is that Nick Claxton, who was their like, yeah. you know, top five defender in the NBA last year, he's a free agent after this year. So if they're not winning, yeah, you kind of have to really – and he's not extension eligible because he was only on a two-year deal. You have to really start considering moving him at the deadline if they are on pace for like 30 wins and he kind of indicates that he's going to test free agency. That becomes complicated yeah. for them. They need to find a pathway here, and I don't think they found one uh, this offseason. Right. It feels like they're spinning their wheels to try and get a star. Now – Let's go here. What did you think of their draft? Um, it was all right. It was all right. Not home run for me. I, I quite like Derek Whitehead, but I, I have my orange flag, so to speak, about his injury history. And you know, as we covered on draft night and talked about, like the surgeon who has performed his second procedure, I believe works for the Brooklyn Nets organization, and you know. Yep they had to have felt very comfortable with his long-term outlook and trajectory. Otherwise they wouldn't have drafted him. Uh, I hope that they just have more information than I do and feel really positive about that. I still get worried about a guy who's got two surgeries on the same foot in one year span. Um, I'm not a huge Noah Clowney guy. Wasn't necessarily a pre-draft. I think there's a, a reasonable world in which he works out for the team and is a good fit next to Nick Claxton long-term. But I don't think either of those guys really helped the Brooklyn Nets this year. I think that this is a, a long-term uh, long term pick for, for a draft. And, yeah. it, you know, I, I think that this is a team that probably could have used a little bit of their opportunity with either trading up from packaging 21 and 22 together or going after somebody who can just live in the lane and say, hey, are you ready to come in and help us right away as the domino that helps – attract either another star to say, well, that's an interesting young player. Either I want to go play with him or we can feature him in a trade to, to get me there. 
uh, I don't think Brooklyn got that guy in Clowney or Whitehead. Yeah, I think Whitehead's interesting. Like, if he could be that guy, if he, like, really hits in some way. I think Clowney is the guy in this draft class. I ran Clowney, I think, at, like, 22 or something like that. If I could get one back... I think I would rank Clowney lower based off of the research I've done this year, just in terms of like freshmen and being ready to play and how valuable that is. Uh, I knew going into the draft that I didn't think he was ready to play in the NBA. And I still like thought the tools were kind of interesting. He's one where I kind of just feel like I, um, the, the value, the time value of like rookie contract, value is real i don't know if he's going to be ready to play by year two or even by year three frankly like he's he's really gonna have to shoot it by year three i think to be able to get into the game yeah and and i you know i had him in the mid 30s on my overall board like i I get that's where i should have had him I, I i I get him in theory because he's big and shoots and defends, but I didn't think he was actually great defending in space. So like, is he really somebody that you would trust playing the four and not the five? And then he only shot 28% from three last year. Like the shot and the mechanics look good, but historically speaking, you don't get great return from first round picks who shot below 32 or 33% the year that they were coming into the draft. So like, I, I just wasn't, overly enthused with Clowney, even though I understand the tools argument and kind of get him in theory. I just, I wasn't thrilled by what I saw in practice. Okay. Let's move on from the nets. Next up, we are going to have the Charlotte Hornets. The Charlotte Hornets had a more active off season than what I think people would remember. They did not participate in any trades, but they had the number two overall pick. And certainly were active in those trade talks, if you believe some reports. Uh, They got offers for those picks, at least. Never, whether or not they considered moving them depends on the source you believe it feels like in the reporting world. They took Brandon Miller at number two. I think that's the most important part of their offseason. They took Nick Smith at number 27. They had the number 34 and number 39 picks. They moved up to number 31 to get James Najee, a six foot 10 big man from Barcelona who is very raw offensively, but has just ridiculous athletic tools. And number 41, they took Amari Bailey uh, out of UCLA. The interesting piece of their contractual offseason was getting LaMelo Ball locked into their extension. Five-year, $205.9 million, has Rose Rule language. If he makes All-NBA this season, he will make 30% of the cap as opposed to 25% of the cap. They signed P.J. Washington to do a three-year, $48 million deal. They signed Miles Bridges to a one-year, $7.9 million qualifying offer. They signed Frank Nilakina to try and replace what they lost in Dennis Smith Jr., They signed Leaky Black to a two-year two-way, which is kind of interesting. They still have Gordon Hayward and JT Thor extension eligible. So this this was not a great offseason for me for reasons that were both in their control and out of their control, maybe is a fair way to put it. Uh, In their control, they could have just taken Scoot Anderson, Right. And I, as we talked about ad nauseum, I don't know that we need to like relitigate necessarily. I would have taken Scoot Henderson at number two. 
I think that he and LaMelo could have played together. I see no reason to, you know, not have those two play together. They both like the ball in their hands. Sure. Scoot Henderson played without the ball in his hands. LaMelo balls played without the ball in his hands. Occasionally with Charlotte, I think you can make this work. I think you can do it. Uh, LaMelo is much better guarding off the ball. Like it's so bizarre to me that they, you know, felt like that wasn't going to work for some reason, but they took Brandon and that's fine. Brandon is a good basketball player and he'll be good. Um, I think they missed an opportunity there, though, as we've talked about a lot. The reason out of their control to me is the Miles Bridges thing, where they now don't really have much value with Miles Bridges. And that's for obvious reasons. Miles Bridges, you know, pled no contest to his domestic violence situation with the mother of his child and missed all of last season. And is suspended, I think, for 10 games to start this season. I personally would have just let him walk. They have given him a one-year $7.9 million qualifying offer where, A, I don't feel comfortable giving him $7.9 million after what he was, uh, what he pled no contest to. And B, now he's an unrestricted free agent next offseason, so he can go sign anywhere. He wants, and if he plays well, better believe that there are teams that will probably sign him. On top of it, when he's on a qualifying offer, he does not have, or he has a no trade clause, which means he doesn't really, like he has bird rights with Charlotte and those could be valuable to get him the most money possible, which means Charlotte could have an advantage in retaining him. That's why teams can't move somebody that is on a qualifying offer. But it's like, do you want to retain him as a real question? And do you have the means to do so as a real question? I just don't, I don't have an answer on any of that. And that, that's what makes this hard. Like it, it feels like to me, the qualifying offer is almost like the worst of both worlds in yeah. some way. Like, and again, that's not, that's not the hornets front office's fault it's the reality of the situation that is shitty i also thought they could have tried to get a fourth year guaranteed with pj washington i think pj is a good basketball player to do a three-year 48 million deal that like extended way into the offseason i thought was a bit bizarre ultimately the two things this the this offseason is going to be remembered for or are going to be remembered for are taking brandon over scoot and signing LaMelo to this big deal. Th- this offseason basically was the one that set the infrastructure for the Hornets for the next four or so years because of those two decisions. So it's a momentous offseason for them. Do you think it was the right offseason for them? Well, we've talked about the Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller thing long enough, and that is such a huge part of that core decision. Like I would, I agree with you. I would have taken Scoot Henderson. So it's, it's hard to definitively say yes, but I do think that anytime you have a a top two pick, uh, the vision of getting him and LaMelo ball locked in together, which by the way, I really like the way that those two can play off of each other, particularly in kind of late shot clock offense. 
those two guys, I think, are going to be a really effective tandem in you know pick and pop and ghost scenarios and playing off of each other in yeah. different ways. Like this is a a roster that, in terms of late clock offensive creation, I think they lacked a lot of that. It makes a lot more sense now. Um, but again, Scoot Henderson probably solves a lot of those issues just on his own. So. I look at this roster right now, Sam, and, and and I see how many overlaps there are between what two years ago when they were making the playoffs or knocking on the door of the postseason. And they had yep. some some good talent then and, and many of those guys are now back. But so I so think- Adam, to be clear, the team that won forty three games last year in twenty twenty two, the guys who played the six most minutes on that roster, or six of the seven guys, let's call it. Oh no! Let's let's do this differently. Uh, <laughs> six of the top eight guys that were on that roster: Miles Bridges, Terry Rozier, Lamelo Ball, Cody Martin, PJ Washington, Gordon Hayward. They lose Mason Plumlee, like in Kelly Oubre. Losses in terms of volume, and Mason was actually pretty valuable in terms of like ball movement and being able to kind of be like that option in short roll scenarios where when teams blitz Lamelo, like he's able to make plays with the ball in his hand and he can pass and take advantage of advantage situations. But they're, it's fair to say, I thought that season, their six most important players were Bridges, Rozier, Ball, Hayward, PJ Washington, Cody Martin. All those guys are back. They add Brandon Miller in who could be something early. They have Nick Richards, who has undeniably gotten better over the course of the last few years. I think he is like a pretty real backup center. They have Mark Williams, who could be a real starting center and could be a defensive anchor long term. Whether or not he'll be that this year, we'll see. If you're playing devil's advocate with the Charlotte Hornets and what the if I was a Hornets fan, this is what I would believe. Why are they not? a team that goes over 500 again. I don't have an answer for you, Sam. Um, like I, I think it's, it's reasonable to take that approach and take that stance. I, I think where I would push back on it is that the, they're younger at the five than they were uh, by having Williams and, and Richards there. And that is an area that can, you know, make a difference in some regular season games and really cost you in close ones when teams, like you said, want to blitz LaMelo ball, turn up the intensity. Like I worry about their kind of short roll creation or playmaking other than just trying to protect the rim and, and catch and finish. But I think the East has gotten better to me. That's, that's where the big difference comes in is that there are more teams in that five to 11 range in the Eastern conference who will win a couple more games each year than they did maybe two years ago. And that pushes down the win total for a team like Charlotte. I think that's right for what it's worth. I think that the league in general has gotten better. I think that there is more talent in the league than what there was previously. I also think the talent is more widely dispersed Mm -hmm. league wide than what we've seen. Like there are more talented teams kind of across the spectrum. The league goes deeper than what it did in 2022. A couple of other just random notes here. That team had Jim Borrego coaching the team. 
This one has Steve Clifford. That was a fundamental change in terms of just the overall way that these rosters play. Steve Clifford is a defensive-minded coach, first and foremost. Borrego is like an offensive guy that really let LaMelo thrive and get up-tempo and everything. We didn't really get enough of a sample yet to know what Steve Clifford's vibe is going to be there uh, in terms of whether or not LaMelo gets to really just like be LaMelo and go. Um, He could. We'll have to see what Miles Bridges looks like coming back from his uh, suspension. I don't love their wing in backcourt defense. I think that is where losing Dennis Dennis Smith is an enormous factor. Yeah, I, I don't think nearly enough people, and we can talk about this for the Brooklyn Nets section as well. Ne- not nearly enough people understood how good Dennis Smith was last season. In something like he played how many minutes here? Dennis Smith played 1,300 minutes last season. He was worth 3.2 wins based off of EPM's model of estimated wins. Purely based on his defense alone, he was one of like the five or six best guard defenders in all of the NBA last season. He was unbelievable, Uh, especially late in the season when Charlotte, which by the way, we just talked about like how fundamental difference between Borrego and Clifford, Charlotte was a top six defense from Valentine's Day onward last year. They were great on that end. But now you add LaMelo in, you add in, you know, probably more Mark Williams minutes even than what we got. You add in Brandon Miller, who's just young and is going to be probably not a great defender early in his career because he's young. I don't think the defense will be quite that level that it was late last season. I think this team will be fun to watch. I think they will be competent. I think they will like, like it won't be like last season. Like they were hard to watch really from, uh, it was weird. I forget like when LaMelo was kind of out to be honest, like they were actually okay to watch from February onward. Like they played pretty again, like competent, well-structured basketball, uh, it, it was like that window to me, it felt like from, I think like November and December where it felt like they were terrible. And like some of that involved Lomelo, but not really. And I, I'll be interested to see what that looks like this year, I guess is where I'm at. Yeah. Sam, I have a question for you on Charlotte and this will be the last kind of thing from me. Um, and it's, it's a philosophical question more than it's specifically about Charlotte, but you'll see how it pertains to the Hornets right now. Sure. If, if you have a roster that is filled with offensive talent but might struggle a little bit more personnel-wise in terms of defensive production, what type of coach would you rather have? An offensive guy who leans fully into weaponizing that and the defense is the defense or a defensive-minded guy who tries to make that a more competent end of the floor but might sacrifice a little bit of the offensive firepower they have in order to make that happen. I think it really depends on who your star players are. Like I get that that's a cop out and I, you know, it's not what people (laughs) want to hear. It's cool. But like, it really depends on who your stars are and how much of a sense of like accountability they need, how much of a sense of, 
like leadership they just inherently have and like willingness to take on their own uh, flaws and improve their own flaws. Like if you need a taskmaster, that's like a defensive taskmaster. Uh, Steve Clifford's like perfect for this group. If you, you know, are, are more willing to improve on your flaws on that side, then I think that having more of a, you know, offensive minded guy probably works a little bit better with LaMelo, frankly. Like you, you go back through a little, like the last few like title winners, right? Like Steve Clifford actualized or not Steve Clifford. I'm sorry. Steve Kerr actualized the Golden State Warriors offensively with his movement and, uh, you know, motion based offense, right? Frank Vogel actualized Anthony Davis and the Lakers and, you know, KCP defensively and Danny Green and all those guys, right? It was a defensive-minded coach for a defensive-minded roster outside of LeBron. Steve Kerr was an offensive-minded coach for an offensive-minded roster with the Golden State Warriors. The Nuggets, like Michael Malone, is like more of a defense guy and that is more of an offensive, you know, structured roster, you could say. So it just depends on what you have, I think. Uh, I, I don't really have like a strong strong take one way or another on that end. Yeah. I don't know where I land on it either, which is part of why I wanted to, to ask the question. I think Steve Clifford's a fantastic defensive coach. Totally. Unbelievable. Yep. And if there's anybody who can take this roster and turn them into a competent group on that end, he's who I'd put my money on. So I think there's reason for optimism in Charlotte, but uh, I want to see it before I believe it. I do too. It, it was a strange off season though uh, it was a bit of a weird off season just like trying and look they're going through like an ownership change as well i have no idea how long mitch kupchak is going to be there for now that there has been an ownership change with the way that these things tend to go in terms of you know turnover from front offices once a new ownership group takes over michael jordan seemingly was quite involved in their front office who knows what this looks like moving yeah. forward let's go to the chicago bulls now chicago bulls had a very active offseason in free agency, did not have a very active offseason on the trade market or in the draft. Uh, no trades, despite many you know potential avenues for trades. They selected Julian Phillips in the draft. They traded two future seconds to get in at number 35 to take Julian Phillips. And then contractually, there's a big long list here. They signed Nikola Vucevic to that three-year $60 million extension where I believe he's like trade eligible in like December or something like that. It's like six months after the uh, extension. I think it's like late December that he'll be eligible to be moved. Uh, Or is it, uh, he might be eligible to be moved. I can't remember. There's like some weird trade stuff with that deal because he signed it as an extension as opposed to a uh, new contract when he was entering free agency and didn't go super high on the number that he signed for. They signed Kobe White to a three-year $36 million contract. They signed Javon Carter to a three-year $19.5 million contract, that last year as a player option. Signed Ayo Desumu to a three-year $21 million contract. Signed Torrey Craig to a two-year $5.4 million contract, last year player option. They brought in Terry Taylor and Adama Sinogo. They lose Patrick Beverly, Derek Jones, Javante Green, and Marco Simonovich. And they still have three very important extension-eligible players, DeMar DeRozan, Patrick Williams, and Alex Caruso. The Williams one is the one that's like really coming to a head because he has to make a decision at some point in the next like month and a half. Let, let's let, let's start here. The Bulls 
were an awesome defensive team last year. I think that went like completely under the radar, much like the Hornets being good defensively by the end of the year. The Bulls were a top five defense last year, largely on the back of Alex Caruso and Patrick Williams. Patrick Beverly was really valuable for them late in the year. I thought Ayo Desumu did a really good job as well. I thought like Derek Jones gave them really active, energetic defensive minutes. There are, there are a lot of infrastructural reasons to believe in them being a good defense again, despite the fact they have Nikola Vucevic, Zach Levine, and DeMar DeRozan on this roster, all of whom are like offense first players. I, I still just struggle to see what the direction of this team is. And it really just feels like they're continuing to spin their wheels a little bit uh, in a way that is confusing to me because while the Bulls were a top five defense last year, they were not a good offense, even with all of that, like, you know, supposed firepower. They were not a good offense, despite the fact that DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, and Nikola Vucevic Do you know how many games they missed last year combined? I don't, Sam. They missed 13 games combined last year. For them. And this was still the 24th best offense in the league. That's a real problem to me. And I just don't know. I don't know where the improvement comes from, from this group. Like there's... Lonzo is not playing this yeah. year, uh, based off of all reports, right? You you sign all these defensive guys like Javon Carter, Io DeSumo, Tori Craig, when there probably isn't much room for your defense to get better when you're going to have to play, you know, 95 minutes of Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, and Nikola Vucevic. I- I'm just very confused on what the Bulls are doing here kind of yeah i don't think there's another team around the league where you could point to every player on their roster and definitively say which end of the floor they're much better at like this is a bulls team where you look at them up and down like that's an offense guy that's an offense that's a defense that's a defense that's a defense and they have really leaned into the infrastructure of we're going to have our three guys and we're just going to go out and get elite defensive connective piece role players. They like high IQ. They like competitive and gritty. The guys that help win you regular season games because they are just tryhards. Like Javon Carter, Io DeSumo, Torrey Craig, Patrick Beverly. And it was that way last year. Like office, you know, office linebacker, Terry Taylor. Like those are tryhard guys in the regular season who are going to go out there and just scrap their Javante green was that guy. They're going to scrap their way to regular season wins. And Alex Caruso but, but, is but the how many they won. They won 40 last year. Like they didn't win a lot, right? That what we're seeing the flaws are in that regard is that they don't have guys who can shoot threes like this three and D moniker that we've really been, been built on over the last decade with role players they excel on the defensive end with the role players they bought in, but they don't shoot a lot of threes and they don't make enough of those three pointers. And, and the yeah. challenge is like DeRozan to be his best needs those guys, Levine and Vucevic. They need those guys to knock down shots. Those three staying healthy and being really good. 
that doesn't carry an offense that far. Like you need role players who knock down shots. Those three guys and three stars carry an offense when they command extra attention and they can create easy looks for guys who can knock those shots down. The Bulls still don't have guys who can knock those shots down. And what I was hoping for this offseason was maybe a little bit more emphasis on just finding a shot maker. But like Javon Carter, Torrey Craig, Io DeSumo, I love all of those guys. I love the grit. I love the toughness, the identity they bring on the defensive end of the floor. They can't make shots enough. Like it's at some point, well, it's, it's a math equation that's just not in their favor. It's interesting because like Javon can really shoot. It's just that he is not a guy that like takes a wild amount of them, right? Yep. He he finally did like up the volume a little bit last year. Like he shot 42% from three on over four three-point attempts per game in 22 minutes a night, right? Th- that's what you need from somebody like that. You need him to be willing to shoot. But like, that's not an enormous upgrade on like what Patrick Beverly was doing at the end of the year, right? Uh, Ayodesumu is just like not a great shooter. Alex Caruso has consistently made shots. He just doesn't really take them. Right. Kobe White, you, I, the Kobe White improved a little bit defensively last year. Like, I do want to give him credit there. I still don't feel great about him playing with like both Damar and Zach Levine on the court at once defensively. So, I, it's just the, the guy that they really need, and this is where it is, right? I, I'm assuming that the way that they rock this is. They bring Alex Crusoe off the bench with Kobe White is like a super sub situation, right? And they bring uh, Javon Carter like into the starting lineup. He can be be like the low usage, pesty offensive player, right? I just – it's just weird to me to see where they're going to go with this. Uh, because DeMar DeRozan has an expiring deal this year. And if DeMar leaves, they're kind of like nowhere. And now they have locked into all of these random three-year deals with guys like Javon Carter, I would assume Tory Craig, that work if you have both Damar and Zach Levine, they don't really work if you have just one of those guys. I just like kind of don't know what their I don't know what their plan is. And look, like some of this sucks, right? Like Lonzo yes. suffering this injury is fucking terrible. And that team was great when they had Lonzo. And Lonzo is like such an underrated player they were put into like this weird circumstance. This offseason was kind of their chance to like get out of it. It felt like they could have like kind of pivoted away. This is the one where like the opportunity cost comes in for me. You could have pivoted away from Nikola Vucevic. You could have pivoted away and maybe moved DeMar DeRozan while he still had a lot of value league wide. Um, Zach Levine still has quite a bit of value. Instead, you leaned into this group that without Lonzo, like we haven't seen much reason to believe in them at this point, I guess. Right. I think that's very fair. Like I, I just keep going back to like, they don't have enough volume shooters from role players and they seem a little small. Like they're very guard heavy. 
I, I don't know. It may, the opportunity cost doesn't bother me that much, but it it bothers me more knowing that there might have been a couple other free agents or role players to go after that like would have tied this together a little bit better for the short term. In my yeah. mind. Yeah, I get it. Like uh, I see that some Bulls fans in the comments are like kind of yelling at me um for, you know, Javon Carter being a substantial shooting improvement in the lineup. Yeah, look, like he's made 40% of 3.2, you know, three-point attempts per game over the last three years. Patrick Beverly over the last four has made 37% of his 3.9 three-point attempts per game over the last couple of years. And I think they get treated very similarly as shooters when they're on the court. That's the most important thing is how you get treated. Uh, Cole Krug asks, like, why not re-sign Vooch uh, versus letting him walk for nothing? Yeah, I guess you could look at it that way. I get it. And I think that's like reasonable. I just don't know how valuable Vooch is on this contract. Like, I don't think they're going to get a first rounder for Vooch on a three-year $60 million deal, given his age, given the defensive, you know, liabilities he potentially brings to the table. I know they were good defensively with him last year, but he's, you know, I think that was more of an in spite of thing because Pat Williams and Caruso and, uh, you know, Pat Bev and some of those other guys like really brought intensity around him on the perimeter. So I say all this to say, I was surprised the bulls just kind of went in on this group this off season, uh, given that they were a 40 win team last year. And given that I like, they got all of the health in the world. Like if Zach Levine misses 15 games this year, which or if DeMar DeRozan misses 15 or whatever, they're in like a real, they're in a real problem situation. The guy that they need to be good is Patrick Williams. They they need Patrick Williams to take a leap on offense. That is, that is the entire game for them at this point. Doing all of this is a bet on Patrick Williams taking a leap on offense. I think everything they did this off season is a bet on Pat Williams. Yeah. Yeah. When you put it like that, you're, you're damn right. It is. So uh, interesting season for him coming up. Uh, I just, I like a lot of the individual players. I like the defense and the grit and the intangibles. I still don't get how it works together. I really don't. I don't either. Okay. The Cleveland Cavaliers are up next. The Cavs, much more playoff-capable team, I think, this year. They acquired Max Struess in a sign-and-trade for Chetty Osman and Lamar Stevens. Really, really good. They brought back Harris LeVert on a two-year, $32 million deal. Struess got a four-year, $62 million deal. George Niang, they signed to a three-year, $25 million deal. They bring in Ty Jerome to a two-year, $4.6 million deal. They signed Craig Porter Jr. to a two-way deal, which I actually really liked and wanted to note that. Uh, and all of those guys will replace Danny Green, Dylan Windler, Robin Lopez, Howell Neto. Uh, they drafted Imani Bates in the draft as well. It's worth noting. He'll spend most of his year in Canton, I would think. Or wherever. the they're I think Cleveland. the G League team is no longer in Canton. Yeah, yeah I think they're, it's in they're Cleveland, they're now, Cleveland now. Say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing that the Cavs struggled with in the playoffs against the Knicks was not having a coherent, competent fifth option offensively on the court. Uh, Isaac Okoro does not get treated as a shooter. Karis LeVert does not get treated as a shooter. They went out and they got in 
Max Struess and George Niang, two guys that can really step in and knock down shots. Uh, Max Struess particularly was just an essential role player on a Miami Heat team that made the NBA Finals. He's a good one-on-one on-ball defender. Uh, George Niang is as smart as they come. These two guys give you an immense amount of lineup flexibility. They give you a lot more off the bench when your starters leave the table. The Cavs last season, in the regular season, for people who are unaware, had the second best net rating in the NBA at plus 5.6. They were the best defensive team. They were a top 10 offensive team. They still have Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen as your top four. I think the Cavs, the Cavs last year, they won 51 games. I think they win more than 51 games this year in the regular season. They're really fucking good, Sam. This roster's really good. You're going to get internal growth from Evan Mobley. You're going to have another year of continuity from Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell playing together. They're deeper. They have more shooting than what they did a year ago, which, by the way, we talk a decent amount about shooting on this show because it is so important. This team took the 24th most three-point attempts in the league last year. Part of that was pace-based, but like all of those three-point attempts coming basically from Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, or at least I think like more than half of them, because Donovan was taking 9.3 and Darius was taking six of them. This team is going to be an awesome regular season team. They're going to be unbelievable regular season team. They're super fun. Uh, They defend. I I love the fact that I'm kind of eating my words about how Mobley and Allen can fit together. And and that pairing looks sensational for the Cavs down low. And it gives them such defensive dominance through the regular season that they can get away with more offensive firepower one through three. And that's where leaning into that and letting guys like Struess and Niang, I don't want to, throw Struess under the bus. He's solid on the defensive end of the floor, but it just, it allows the Cavaliers to lean in a little bit more to raising that offense to an elite level. And I think this could be the year when they really take that, that leap. Um, I, I absolutely, absolutely love Darius Garland. He is the one guy that I don't think gets talked enough about because Mobley has been so good on defense and Donovan Mitchell has come in and, and, quickly change the trajectory of the franchise. Darius Garland is one of the more well-rounded offensive players that you'll find in this league. Like a really good combination of on-ball and off-ball, playmake and score. I'm a huge Darius Garland fan. If he can take another leap, this this is like a 56-plus win team to me. I kind of think I agree with you. And they have a little bit more versatility in terms of the lineups they can throw out there is the big reason why. Like last year, it just feels like they don't have a lot of confidence in Dean Wade. Uh, They lose Chetty Osman, who was a struggle bus, felt like a lot of the time on defense to me. Uh, Kevin Love was, for whatever reason, able to like really bring it back Um, on – 
the Miami Heat, but was not there uh, for the Cavs, was not nearly as effective. Danny Green was, uh, he was, uh, it felt like he was done uh, by the time uh, the playoffs rolled around. And I know he didn't play a ton of regular season minutes, but nonetheless, right? Like, this is a really loaded, deep team this season that has real floor spacing around Evan Mobley, around Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, it's going to be easier for Garland and Mitchell to be able to get into the paint and drive and create things this year than what it was last year because someone's going to always have to stay attached to Struess, to Niang in the corner. Uh, yeah, they're going to be good. Yep. They're, yep. they're going to be really, really good, I think. And look, their playoffs – will depend on a couple of things they need to find. I think first and foremost, the right matchup. The Knicks were just a really bad matchup for them last year. Second, they need Evan Mobley to take a leap, not just in terms of a defensive help defender all over the place, being able to like move around and fly around, but also as a defensive rebounder and anchor on the interior that also can do a little bit more of the ball in his hands. If he can play real minutes, the five in the playoffs, that is the thing for them. Yeah. And typically year three is when these guys that are a little bit skinny that have like center measurements are able to slide into that role a little bit more often. I have hopes that Evan Mobley will be able to take uh, situational minutes in that role in the playoffs when necessary, not to like completely remove Jared Allen from the equation because Jared Allen, by the way, was probably a top 10 defender in the NBA last year. Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, both being top 10 defenders, Mobley, a top five defender. That's the reason this was the best team defensively in the NBA last season. They will continue to be that as long as they have both of those guys there in the regular season. But like Mobley being able to slide down and play the five more often is what changes them from a regular season juggernaut to a really, really good potential playoff team that can get multiple shooters out there on the court with Garland and Mitchell. They can get, you know, potential three and D guys out there. Like it's really, really important for Mobley to be able to slide down and play the five. Any leap that he takes this year is really big. I think. Yeah, I, I like the lineup flexibility. I think that's a good call for them moving forward to the playoffs. But what I like is the natural progression of how Kobe Altman and company are kind of building this roster, right? You see if the two big experiment works. Then you go out and you make a major move for another star player. That's your next offseason. That's right. So, okay, now we've got a ton of talent and a unique kind of roster build. And then you find the right role players next to them. And where they've really leaned into was saying this Allen and Mobley defensive group is so dominant, even with guys like Mitchell and Garland, who aren't known for being top tier defenders on the perimeter, but we still have the number one defense in the NBA. We can lean a little bit more into offense with our role players. Let's go out and get George Niang. Let's go out and get Max Struess. Let's try Ty Jerome for not much money yep. at all. And a guy who like can really shoot and play on ball and off ball and, and has legitimate offensive value in this league like he could be in for a very good year because he knows he's got those two rim protectors behind him I just love the 
the way this Cavs roster has been thought out and the way that it has progressed to get to this point. Like they're yeah. going to continue to get better. Yeah, I think they're going to keep getting better too. I've seen some like conversations preliminarily about like the Cavs need to look at moving Donovan Mitchell already. I think that is like so, so premature based on where they are right now. He still has this year and next year locked in. There, There is like no argument for even considering moving Mitchell based on where they are right now. Yeah. The other piece of this, and I mentioned it in the extension eligible section here on the YouTube video, which by the way, if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to the podcast version, go to YouTube, subscribe. Uh, you will be able to watch these shows with real uh, graphics and everything like that, which break down what we're talking about. Really fun. We're getting a little bit more interactive here. Uh, the other piece of this that is interesting is Isaac Okoro. He is extension eligible. Yeah. He is a good defender. Like he has proven his worth on that end. He continues to get just like a little bit better offensively every year in terms of his role. He still does not take many threes and that is ultimately the biggest problem for him. He needs to become a confident three-point shooter, not just a three-point shooter. Yeah. But over the last two years, Isaac Okoro has taken over 300 threes and made them at like a 36% clip. And I think I would want to re-sign him if I was Cleveland. I don't know what the number is. Maybe it's like 445 or something. I wouldn't want it to be super high given the fact that he has not seen a lot, but I would want to continue to go down this road. And if I could get a discount on him, I would want to do it. All right. I guess I could understand that. I, I just, I can't get the taste of the postseason out of my mouth from that. And I still think you want extension guys and second contract guys who help you in the playoffs. And I saw real threats to that from Isaac this this year. And he's 22. And if he can shoot even a little bit, he's young. If he can shoot like, if he can make 36% of his threes when he's taken five of them per game as opposed to like two and a half per game. He, look, he's wide open. That's the biggest thing why these threes fall, right? He is wide ass open every single time, but I don't know. There's some, I still love the way he plays. I still love the like wrecking ball attitude that he brings. I, I just, I have like a little bit of faith, a little bit to where I would want to continue to go down that road. Cause it's going to be hard for the Cavs to find guys like him. Sure. Moving forward. Um, that's neither here nor there though at this point. Uh, I, I think Okoro can be valuable with the Cavs, uh, but he still has a leap to go in order to get to that level. The thing is, though, they need somebody like him as like a defensive-minded player that can guard backcourt players. Yeah. So I, I like the idea of continuing down that road. Okay, next up is going to be the Dallas Mavericks. The Dallas Mavericks were active this offseason in reshaping their roster. The biggest note is that they signed Kyrie Irving to a three-year $126 million contract. They retained him after acquiring him over the trade deadline. The details on that deal are interesting. According to Spotrack, he has a last year player option and a 15% trade bonus, which feels important 
for a Kyrie Irving situation, given how the last few situations have ended. The thing that Dallas did best was completely reshape their defense around Luka and Kyrie. So at the draft, they trade number 10 and Davis Bertans to Oklahoma City, and they get Derek Lively, a seven foot one big from Duke, who long term should be their defensive anchor on the interior. I don't know that he'll be able to play more than like 10 minutes a night this year. He is definitely somebody that will take a lot of work offensively, but he has real defensive anticipation and real uh, capabilities. They acquired the number 24 pick and Rashawn Holmes from Sacramento on draft night and selected Olivier Maxon's Prosper, a 6'8 wing from Marquette. He is a guy I think will play pretty early for them because he is an awesome defensive player who can take on tough assignments at the three and the four. The other guy they got that takes on tough assignments that hit the three and the four is Grant Williams. They traded, and I don't think I realized they gave up as much as they did for Grant. To yeah, be honest they gave with a you. lot. Yeah. So they traded, I believe, two seconds to Boston for Grant Williams. And then they moved Reggie Bullock and an unprotected 2030 first round pick swap to San Antonio for Grant Williams. That unprotected pick swap for a team that has Victor Wembanyama is something that we're going to look at in like six years if Luca leaves Dallas for some reason and be like, oh shit, this was bad. <laughs> All of that is very dependent on what happens with Luca. It's not worth speculating on that. But that one is one that I'm watching and I'm just like, oh. That could be a fun one. They signed Grant Williams to a four-year, $53 million deal. They retained Dwight Powell on a three-year, $12 million deal. They bring in Seth Curry and Dante Exum on deals that are guaranteed for this year, uh, like at a combined $7 million. They signed Derek Jones Jr. to a one-year, $2.7 million deal. They waive JaVale McGee. His contract will be stretched over the next five years at a $2.3 million cap hit. And... If you look at who they got rid of, it's Christian Wood, who was a no-defense player, Theo Pinson, Frank Nilakina, uh, Justin Holiday, and Markeith Morris. A fascinating offseason where the infrastructure defensively that you can see in Dallas now, they can do some weird, fun things where like they play wildly small with like Maxi Kleba at the five, Grant Williams at the four, Grant like anchoring against bigs, Maxi being like a crazy help defender. Uh, you know, they still have Tim Hardaway Jr. on this roster. They still have Josh Green on this roster. He's an enormous piece of where they're going. Mm-hmm. If you watch Dante Exum uh, with Australia as well during the World Cup, you saw a guy that I think very clearly looks like a player that will be valuable in the – um in the rotation at the end of the day for Dallas is just a up-tempo like uh, you know transition pusher with Kyrie particularly I think given that Kyrie I think likes to play a little bit more up-tempo than what people often give him credit for a really fun roster now Dante is a good defender Omax is a good defender Josh Green's a good defender Maxie's a good defender Grant Williams is a good defender like there's just a lot there there's truly just a lot there that I really like. 
Yeah, I like the moves. I like the young players, too. I like Derek Lively. I like Omax Prosper. And, of course, I like Jaden Hardy uh, and what he can continue to, to turn into. Like, those are three valuable depth pieces. The question for me is just, can you get anything really consistently out of one of them this year? Because if you can, and one of those guys turns into a rotation player or a plus rotation player, I like where Dallas is headed. But with if you remove those three guys from the rotation, so to speak, right? Like Lively and Prosper aren't quite ready, and Hardy still has some of his decision making and and kind of you know flaws that allow him to not play next to Kyrie or Luca. It does feel like they're one piece short in some regard. Like they've got better role players and a better cohesive plan, but talent wise, I wish there was just one more guy. I do wish they had one more guy, but for a Dallas team that like desperately needed to overhaul its defense this off season, and you're going to build around Luca and Kyrie, at least for the next two years, you needed to do all of this. Yeah. Like this, this is all the infrastructural moves that you had to make in order to have a chance, I think. And they have young guys now defensively that can build and grow with Luca in Josh Green, Omax, and Derek Lively. Honestly, like if Lively is ready to play by year two, it'll be a win. Uh, if he's ready to play by year two and like be valuable, that'd be huge for Dallas. Like it'd be enormous. If he's ready to play at all this year, it'd be enormous for Dallas. I- I'm skeptical on that front. And I think that's probably why they brought back Dwight Powell. I would expect that Dwight Powell starts for this team still, but there's just a lot here that you can really, you can really make work. I think if you're Dallas. Yeah, and the underrated piece to all of this to me continues to be Josh Green and Tim Hardaway Jr. As guys who on the wings are not just valuable, you know, Green because of his defensive acumen in some regard, but this is a team that can and will continue to mismatch hunt and punish poor defenders. And yep. what Hardaway and Green do as screeners and guys who go up there and force those mismatches while being able to knock down shots is really, really important. Like it's a simple brand of basketball on the offensive end. As long as you have some of those guys out there, which is why I'm glad they're leaning into the the defensive framework and some of their other role guys. And, and by the way, my take on Josh Green is that they should sign him to an extension now. Uh, versus yeah. later because Josh Green looked good for Australia and I think he's going to look really good with this team. He is to me like an immediate starter at the three for them, play him with Grant Williams at the four, play probably Dwight Powell at the five, I guess. Hope that Lively yeah. continues to make real growth. Uh, you bring Tim Hardaway Jr. as like your instant offense off the bench, but yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, can I just ask you, Sam, what's going to happen here with Christian Wood? Like, what's what's going on, man? I don't know. I, I truly, truly have no idea. <laughs> don't I, I have no idea. I'm not going to speculate on. Yeah, that. no, I I'm, I'm, don't know where. It goes. I'm, I'm not asking necessarily for like a who's going to sign him and for how much, but it's like, what do you do with a player like that right now? Like he. He can score the crap out of it. Like, there's no doubt about it. I don't know. I've never, 
I have never been in on the Christian Wood Hive personally, so I I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Maybe Fair we'll enough. go with on this. Fair enough. Uh, but I think Dallas is a playoff team this year. I think their defense is going to be good and or at least better. Like if they can get to league average on defense, then get to if they can get to 18th on defense from 24th last year, this team is like probably a 48 win team. You would think. With Luca and Kyrie, but you know we'll see if Luca and Kyrie stay healthy, and as long as they stay healthy, it'll be a good team. Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, I love this off season though. This is yeah. one of my favorite off seasons, just in general, building around what you have. Yep. Okay. This next one's going to be a little bit shorter because Denver just did not do much. Uh, Denver did not make a trade. They let Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, Thomas Bryant, Ish Smith, and Jack White go. They signed Reggie Jackson to a two-year, ten point three million dollar deal. They signed Justin Holiday to a one-year $3.2 million deal. They brought back DeAndre Jordan to a one-year $3.2 million deal. And in the draft, they made some that, – that this is where their trades did happen. They traded a 2029 20, protected first that I think is like top 20 protected. Like it's very protected. Uh, for a 2024 first, a 2024 second – And the number 37 overall pick in this draft, that was Hunter Tyson, who looked great at Summer League. Then they traded that 2024 2024 first that they got from Oklahoma City and the number 40 pick to Indiana for number 29 and number 32. That was part of some weird like four-team deal. Anyway, they ended up with Julian Strother and Jalen Pickett. I love what they have. I love their ideas here. I love that they have gone out and gotten young players in Strother and Pickett and Tyson who all should be ready to play like pretty early, kind of like how Christian Brown was ready to play pretty early. I wish I was a bigger fan of Pickett particularly, and I wish that I thought Strother was a little bit better defensively than what I do think he is. But Strother shooting on this roster, if I was Denver, I would have had Julian Strother much higher on my personal board than where he was. I would have probably had him right around 29. Uh, Hunter Tyson for Denver, I would have had him, you know, I think I had Hunter at like 45 or so. I would have had him probably, you know, a little bit higher than where they took him, probably right around where they took him. Losing Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, particularly, it's a big investment in Peyton Watson being ready to play. I think Peyton Watson's going to be fine. Like, I I think Mm -hmm. he's going to be able to play. And, Christian Brown will move into the Bruce Brown role is my bet. Peyton Watson moves into the Christian Brown role. And then they just need to find one of those younger players or Justin holiday to be able to step into that Jeff green role. I think there's a chance this bench is going to be just like slightly worse than what it was last year. Bruce Brown's a big loss. Like nobody's going to deny that Bruce Brown is a huge loss. But if you think that Christian Brown is as good as I think Christian Brown is, I think that there's probably not as enormous a drop off here as what maybe has uh, been indicated. I really like Christian Brown. I think they're going to miss Bruce Brown an absolute ton. Um, You know, the point that I kind of make about the veterans and the lack of experience on that bench is, hey, there's always late February. Like there's going to be buyout markets or different opportunities where you can sign somebody 
who wants to come play in a championship situation, like no better spot to go than with the the reigning NBA champions. So I think this bench will look different by the end of the season. So I'm not going to judge the unit as a whole right now. I'm going to more so look at kind of the idea behind these younger pieces. And when I say younger pieces, I mean, their draft picks like Tyson Strother and Pickett are all kind of older guys. Uh, I always like Strother and the shooting ability that he can provide. I love the idea of him in transition in Denver. Uh, Hunter Tyson was great in summer league and like, I'm starting to come around a little bit on Jalen Pickett. I, I'm like you, I wasn't that high on him, but like his just cerebral play has kind of dragged me across the picket line, if you will. So like, I, I think that there's an opportunity for, I saw that coming from like a mile away too, by the way, when getting, you still did it. And yeah, we're getting too close, Sam. I think, I think this is, you're starting to, to read the fastball coming here, but look, I, I, I like the idea of getting older rookies of getting floor spacing wings of finding a, potential floor general for that second unit and a guy like Pickett who can really create in different and unique kind of ways. Those are the right type of inexpensive flyers that the Denver Nuggets should be doing right now. And let the veteran stuff bear itself out later. You kept the main core of this team together. They're going to be fine. Yep. That's right. Look, I don't have much else to say on Denver. Uh, This is, they did what they should have done. They yep. kept the band together and didn't overpay. It's all they could do or could not do. Okay. Next up is going to be the Detroit Pistons. The Detroit Pistons had a, a quiet ish off season after the draft. Let's go with they acquired Monte Morris for a 2027 second rounder at the draft. They acquired Joe Harris uh, for a 2027 second rounder from Brooklyn. At the draft, they took a Sar Thompson, a 6'7 wing from Overtime Elite. They acquired the number 25 overall pick for number 31 and two future seconds. They took Marcus Sasser, a 6'2 guard from Houston. Uh, later in the summer, the only thing they really did, and by the way, this says they signed DeAndre Jordan. They did not sign DeAndre Jordan. That's just <laughs> a, I caught a bit of a hanger there, it looks like, uh, on the template I was using. Uh they signed Isaiah Stewart to a four-year $60 million deal. That last year is a team option. It has $4 million in incentives. They signed Jared Roden, Malcolm Cazalon, Buddy Behind, Tosan Abunum, Stanley Amude to like E10s in two ways. No longer on this roster. Hamadou Diallo, Corey Joseph, Rodney Magruder, RJ Hampton, Eugene Omaruyi, who, by the way, sneaky, not terrible. He's like, good. Was Pretty okay for them last year. Uh, and they have a bunch of guys extension eligible. Monte Morris, Alec Burks, Isaiah Livers, Joe Harris, James Wiseman, Killian Hayes. Uh, look, they essentially brought in like professional basketball players, Monte Morris, Joe Harris, uh, and Marcus Sasser, who I think is going to be really good. Uh, in addition to Osar Thompson and, you know, replaced guys like Diallo, who I think is also a professional player, but Corey Joseph, who might not have a lot left, Rodney Magruder, RJ Hampton, and number E. Like this team is way deeper. They have way more options. We talked about that on the podcast with Mark on Thursday last week. I think they're going to be a better team, frankly. I think they're going to be a lot more valuable. I think they're going to be just a lot more, a lot more capable at the end of the day. They're, they're deep, man. Like they're, they're deep, like one, at one, two, and three spots. 
I still don't love the way the roster comes together at the four and the five. Like I, I tend to believe that if you have multiple ball handlers and guys with the ball in their hands and a more rim bound five man, it's probably easier nowadays to lean into just a bigger wing at the four than it is like a true four slash five and a guy like Stewart. I still want to see how this fit comes together. I want to see how Asar, Jaden Ivey, and Cade Cunningham all make it work and how Monty Williams can shuffle the rotations to make this really fit best for everybody. They've got a lot more talent. I like the word professionalism that you used. I think that's a common theme amongst the veterans and guys who are more role players on this roster, and that should incrementally help all of the younger guys put together. This all comes back to Cade Cunningham for me. I really believe in him being an absolute star player. I just want to see it and continue to see that take a leap. And if he is, I have a couple questions about how the younger players that they've picked the last few years bring out the best versions in Cade from a floor stacing standpoint. But I like the roster in general, and I think it's very, very, very easy to say they've gotten a lot better from where they were last year. I keep selling myself on the Pistons a little bit more and yeah. more. Uh, I like that they seem to have really valued shooting. I still have some questions about like building a roster with like all of Jalen Duran, Jaden Ivey, and Asar Thompson yep. as like, somewhat questionable shooters. I think Jaden proved a little bit of that last year. Like he shot 37% off the catch from three last year. It's just that he's not, it's not his first option to shoot necessarily off the catch. I think that if you look, if you look at the kind of role player pieces on this team, Getting Monte Morris, Joe Harris, Marcus Sasser, still having Isaiah Livers, still having Boyan Bogdanovich, still having Alec Burks, you have a lot of potential 40% three-point shooters on this group. I want to see lineups with three of those guys out there with Cade. Yes. Like, you can't do it all the time because you have Jaden Ivey. You can't do it all the time because you have a Sar Thompson. You need to invest in those guys. I get that. I also want to see Cade and what he looks like and what you can do when you invest in him and give him some runway with real floor spacing and with real shooters out there. That That's what I'm most looking forward to with Detroit. Detroit will go as far this season as Jalen Duran takes them defensively. Jalen really struggled last season defensively. Uh, I broke that down with James Edwards earlier this week uh, over at the athletic. I would implore people to go read that. Um, J- Jalen has a ways to go. I think he'll, get there eventually it's just he's a teenager and it's hard to defend in the nba as a teenager and he's definitely their best defensive option at the five because the other two are marvin bagley and james wiseman both of whom are worse than he is defensively at the five um like i've i've talked about the pistons quite a bit on the last episode i don't really know that i need to do that a ton more i will just say that i think that Well, here, let's finish on this. The Isaiah Stewart deal has gotten some consternation from people, let's call it. I can't really understand why. Isaiah Stewart is like a developing, solid, defensive big who has the ability to play the four and the five as long as the jumper comes together and the ball handling skills like improves a little bit. The jumper took a real leap last year. 
He's physical. He's the kind of tough dude that you want on your roster. Like, I just kind of buy that dude. I get that the advanced numbers and the stats don't look great. Like, I, I use advanced numbers and stats as much as anybody. I get it. I just also think there's a lot that he brings to the court that the numbers don't capture. And I would, I think this deal was fine, especially given that they have a team option on the end of it. Like this is, this is a great contract. I think for Detroit, it's what he's worth, I guess is what I would say. Like he got a deal for what he's worth and it's a three-year deal. If it doesn't work well, it's a four-year deal. If it does work well, like this is, this is a good deal for Detroit. Yeah, I mean, I still will die on the hill that he and P.J. Washington should just switch teams and everybody wins. That's just that continues to be what I, I kind of say there. But, uh, no, I, I, I like this this offseason from Detroit. They got better. They got better role players. The shooting thing is really, really important to me. But they have real depth. And the last thing I'll say on Detroit is I really hope that they don't let the search for what a younger role player could be get in the way of maximizing what your core players should be. That the the idea of exploring around the margins, particularly in a year or so when you might not be the, this might be your last chance before you are a contender to find a lot of that real cheap, valuable young role player guy. And don't let the search of that guy get in the way of maximizing Cade Cunningham Jaden Ivey, Sar Thompson, and Jalen Duran. Those are the four. Those are the four with the most potential. Those are the yeah. four who have shown something through their rookie seasons or coming into the, the draft year this year with the Sar. Do not let exploring the fringes get in the way of maximizing those four. Yeah, like stop with this James Wiseman Duran stuff. Stop, stop with this like Marvin Bagley Duran or Wiseman Bagley stuff. Like stop it you have real options use them um honestly like i still i noted on the last show like i would start alec burks if i was them burks has been a consistent 40 percent three-point shooter i like the idea of going like cade ivy burks boyan and duran to start because the other thing that bringing isaiah stewart off the bench does is it minimizes the amount that you have to play a backup four man. Like you don't have to play both wise Wiseman and Bagley. You can play one of them for like eight or 10 minutes a night. You can play Stewart at the five for 15 minutes a night. You can play him with the four for 12 minutes a night. You can play, you know, boy on at the four for minutes. You can play, um, you know, you could like do a Sar Thompson at the four for some minutes here and there, if you want to, like you can steal minutes, I think across the positional spectrum, but like the Bagley's, the Wiseman's, the Killian Hayes's, you have enough guys to where you don't have to keep developing them at this yep. point. All due respect, Killian, he's become like a useful uh, defender defender. And like, I don't think he should be out of the NBA after his next deal, much in the way that like Frank Nilakina is stuck around the fringes, but you have your ball handlers now. You don't really need it. And, and yeah, Steve, like I agree that Cade Ivy Burks boy on Durin is terrible on defense. You just have to find out what you have with Cade on offense first and foremost, I think. Well, and, and you have to like expose Durin to those minutes and those reps. Like if you, 
he has shown the potential to become that guy just because he's not very good right now. doesn't mean you shouldn't put him in those types of situations where he's going to have to be exposed to when he becomes very good. Like that's the thing about a developing team. You can't just hide guys from being exposed to what they're going to have to be when they're good players. You want that exposure when you're younger and you're not a great team so that you can have that growth get through it, get those reps, and know what to expect when you're playing those really, really meaningful games. I, I don't think that this should be a roster that, or, or a, a lineup that tries to hide those younger guys from it. Like, throw them out there and expose them to it. Show them what it's like. Show them how they need to defend. That will make them better long-term. Yeah, and you don't need to make the leap this year. I know that like Pistons fans want to make the plan. Yeah. I think that like the Pistons want to make the plan based off of mm-hmm. all their moves. You don't have to take that leap no. this year. This year is still we need to know what Kate is. Like yeah. first and foremost, like that's you can't leave unless he gets hurt again. You can't leave this season without knowing exactly what Cade Cunningham is and if he is a genuine potential number 1 option. I think he is, but we don't know for sure yet. And that's the thing they need to find out moving forward. Okay. Last team of our group here, the Golden State Warriors. The big move for them was moving Jordan Poole, Ryan Rollins, Patrick Baldwin, and a top 20 protected 2030 first round pick, as well as second for Chris Paul. Then they re-signed Draymond Green. That was one that, you know, throughout the season, especially early, you would hear, are they going to bring back Draymond? He just punched Jordan Poole in the face. Like, is this the end of Draymond in Golden State? By the time, like, February, March rolled around, it felt like it was going to be Draymond back in Golden State. Uh, He signs a four-year, $100 million deal, last year player option, 15% trade bonus if he does move. I would expect that Draymond is a warrior for life. Signed Dario Saric to a one-year $2.7 million deal. Signed Corey Joseph to a one-year $3.2 million deal. They do lose Dante DiVincenzo and Andre Iguodala in addition to Michael Green and Anthony Lamb. I clearly missed the extension eligible section here again because I was tired when I was making these graphics. My God, my brain is broken irreparably. Um in the draft, they select Brandon Pajemski, a six foot five guard from Santa Clara, uh, and they acquired the number fifty seven pick from Washington for cash and took Trace Jackson Davis, a six nine big out of Indiana. Kind of a ho hum summer for the Warriors. Like the the big one is they now have Chris Paul instead of Jordan Poole. Yeah, they had to give up a first round pick to do it, but the Paul deal gives them a lot of potential flexibility in terms of how they move in search of a potential future star to pair with this aging core of Steph, Clay, and Dre. They also have Chris Paul, who is still a good player. Like he's still good at basketball. It's just the health that catches up with Chris, unfortunately, a lot of the time. And it's a big bet on losing Dante DiVincenzo and Andre Goodall and Jamichael Green and Anthony Lamb on their young guys and hoping that Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga, maybe pods can play a little bit. I wouldn't expect that necessarily, but they just have guys that can play. They also lost Ty Jerome as well. I'm realizing Uh, I missed him in the gone section, but yeah, like real team, real good, like real potential NBA champion next year. I think 
can make a case this might be like the last year of their window, but people have been saying that for multiple years now. I think any year is the last year potentially of their window. Yeah. What do we think of the Warriors offseason now that they have Chris Paul on this roster? I still don't know what to make of that fit. I still don't know what to make of the long-term agenda there. Like there's something that feels very D'Angelo Russell to me about this. Like this is the acquire a guy knowing that we got to get off of the Jordan Poole deal and then move this deal for the guy that we really want next. Uh, And I don't know how to feel about that, but that's at least what it smells like to me right now. Um, I like Sharich quite a bit. I think that's an intriguing signing for them. I think they're going to miss DiVincenzo. Like to me, that is going to be one of the most, one of the most underrated departures this entire off season is losing him from that backcourt. And kind of, you look around at who they've replaced him with like an aging Corey Joseph and a guy in Pajemski who I wasn't crazy about. I don't know if he's going to come in right away and, and be able to do much. Like I, I like Moses Moody a lot. I think it's a very different role than what Dante DiVincenzo was able to give them. So he is going to be missed, no doubt about it. Yeah, I think that what he brought defensively and what he brought as like a secondary ball handler will yeah. be missed. Chris Paul is like kind of a weird combination of like both him and uh, Jordan Poole because of the offense that Chris Paul still can bring to the table. Dante's a little bit more hit or miss on that end. Whereas Chris can really get efficient offense. The other piece of this that's interesting is like the Warriors like to go. They like to run. They like to try and get up tempo. Chris Paul does not like Chris Paul is going to play slow. He's going to play deliberately. What does it look like? Cause Chris Paul is going to have to fit into them. Like it's not a situation where the Warriors are going to fit into Chris Paul. Right. Even though every other situation that Chris Paul has been in, in his career has tended to fit around Paul as opposed to the other way around. That's not going to happen with Golden State. They have their scheme. They have their system. This is what they're going to do. They're going to play motion offense. They're going to get up and down. They're going to play in transition. They're going to do all of that. How does Chris Paul's more deliberate style fit with that is going to be the most interesting piece of the Warriors. And do they just envision him as like a contractual placeholder in a potential deal for another player this year. Because that Chris Paul contract is incredibly valuable. It will give another team $30 million in cap space if they want it uh, next offseason. If they want to make a move deadline, they can get $30 million in cap space immediately by acquiring Chris Paul. Because that deal is non-guaranteed. We've seen the Warriors do this before with D'Angelo Russell, sign a placeholder max after Kevin Durant left. I wonder if they're looking at it like that as well. I think that would be a good way to look at it. It's a very valuable contract. Yeah, that's what it smells like to me. Uh, I don't know if now is the right time to try to uh, conject who those players or targets might be. And I think that there are certainly going to be some that come available or might be more available through the season than there are at this moment in time. Yeah, But I like the fact that that is an option for them. It might be a little bumpy right out of the gates to try to see that fit and that cohesion work with Chris Paul on the Warriors. But that's that's what it smells like to me. This is a chip to get the right guy in with the score. 
I will give you one name that I think is interesting. Okay. If the Raptors start out quite poorly by like the time February rolls around, I wonder if Pascal Siakam really lines up for them. Oh boy. Okay. So Toronto would need more back though, right? Like they, you'd need, well, you have Moody, you have Kuminga, Kuminga. you have Pajemski, like you have all these guys that like are at least valued somewhat league wide. And that's an expiring deal, which is why I say him versus by the way, OG Ananobi is also an expiring deal. You could easily say Ananobi for this too. But I think if the Raptors do not play well this year, there is a lot of synergy between a Warriors-Raptors deal. I think the Raptors are going to try and contend, and I think like yeah. that's their goal for sure. But the Raptors did not make the play-in last year. Or did not make the playoff last year. I'm sorry. They did make the play-in. I don't know that they're better than what they were last year necessarily. They lose Fred Van Vliet. Like, that's a huge loss. I think there's a lot of synergy between a Warriors and Raptors deal, is what I would say. Very For Ananobi or Siakam, one of the two. Very, very interesting. Huh. Okay. Uh, the Warriors, they'll be great. They're going to be really good. Their offseason was quiet outside of that uh, Jordan Poole for Chris Paul deal, uh, which we have talked about ad nauseum. Adam, we went for two hours. That was a little bit longer than what I wanted. We ended up talking for about 10 minutes per team. I wanted eight. I felt like that is okay on some level. 10 works for me. I thought we got in everything we needed to. We got in what we needed to. Adam, Tell the people where they can find your work, and then I will explain what's going on with the podcast over the next two weeks. Sure. Uh, anyone who wants to find me and my work, follow me on Twitter at one underscore, my Substack page, theboxandone.substack.com, or my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Adam Spinella. I have kind of pre-published most of my work, so to speak, and scheduled it out. My wife and I are expecting a child here in the next couple of weeks, so I'm going to be doing a little bit less on the public side of things right now, but have some think piece articles coming out um, really focused around just philosophical topics around the NBA draft. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, head on over to my Substack page and check it out progressively over the next month. Okay. So here's what's happening with the podcast the next two weeks. On Tuesday, I think, could be Thursday, probably Tuesday. Andrew Schlecht is coming through, and we're going to do the second of these, uh, 11 to 20. uh, Or wherever Oklahoma City is, they're right on the border of that 20 mark. It'll be either the last third of teams or the um, middle third of teams. Also on, I believe, Thursday in the United States, which is why I want Schlecht to come on Tuesday, and I think he's going to. Um, the G League Ignite plays the Perth Wildcats and Adam is going to come back on after that and we're going to talk about either on Friday or on Thursday I'm not sure which day it'll be yet depending on how late I want to make Adam stay up and we're going to talk about from a draft perspective what we saw from Modest Bezelis, uh Ron Holland Alex Saar 
Thierry Darlan, uh, Izzy Almanza, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's a huge prospect game. It's the version of, you know, Ignite versus Metropolitans last year. Sar looks really good for Perth. I'm just going to tell people, like, if you've seen any of Perth's, like, early season scrimmages, he looks great right now. And I am fascinated to see what he looks like against the Ignite. Next week, Laura and I are on vacation. Um, I'm finally taking a week and like not looking at basketball, which means I'm going to schedule out podcasts for the next few days uh, or next few weeks. I have an idea of what I want to do for that week. And as we get later in the week and I hear back from the person I want to do that with, I will let you guys know if once it becomes finalized. My guess for next week, though, is the final third of off-season recaps and then two other uh, things that are also within a like season preview kind of mode. So keep it locked here. I'm excited. I'm excited to go on vacation more than anything. Yeah. After that, that next weekend, I am up in the Gold Coast for the NBL Blitz, where I'm hoping I'm going to be able to get like Alex R and AJ Johnson and Bobby Clintman and some folks, um, either for the podcast or for writing. I'm not sure yet which it'll be, which one. Honestly, I might just do both at the end of the day. Um, but double dipping and like trying to like kind of write and podcast and do like a little thing. So that that's the current plan for the show over the next like couple of weeks, three weeks, Adam, uh, we'll, we'll figure out a schedule in terms of you coming back. I have no idea when that'll be me either. Me either, Sam. (laughs) Okay. This has been the game three podcast. Please remember rate review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. Again, go to that YouTube link, please. Uh, it is valuable for you to go to that YouTube link because we had graphics today that you were able to follow along with. Also, it's the best place to watch the show because you get to see Adam and I talking. You get to see what's going on on the show. Um, It's a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, engaging and we try and like involve people as much as we can, everything like that. Go watch the show on YouTube. Go subscribe on YouTube. You'll know when we're going live. We record all these shows live over on YouTube and then bring them over to the podcast feed where many of you still listen to the show. Okay, Adam, that's what I've got. Until next time, we will talk soon.